QUT acknowledges the Turrbal and Yugara as the First Nations owners of the lands where QUT now stands. We pay respects to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of teaching, research and learning. QUT acknowledges the important role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people play within the QUT community. And here at How To Academia, we also acknowledge that these lands have never been ceded. Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. Our guest this episode is Dean Byron. Dean is a sessional academic at QUT, teaching in the School of Justice. He was previously a police officer, primarily working in the Child Abuse and Sexual Assault Unit. He also has a PhD in music criticism. To find out how all that fits together, I encourage you to listen on. On this episode, Jody and Dean discuss Dean's journey through his career, unpack the psychological impacts of policing, and have some deep dive discussions on the meaning of justice. Obviously, this episode contains a content warning for discussion of sexual violence and child sexual abuse. I'd also like to issue a language warning. This one is just a little more sweary than our usual episodes. Without any further ado, Dean Byron. Welcome to How To Academia. Who the heck are you? Thank you. I'm Dean. Dean, tell us more about you. Okay, well, I'll try and give you a very brief background as to why I'm sitting here today, I guess. Might Do it. Be the way to go. I was born in Brisbane, grew up in a very much a working class sort of family. My father came from Italy in the early 50s, so he was a house painter and cane cutter and sorts of other stuff. So there was no academic background in my family whatsoever, really. So I came out of school in the mid-80s, early 80s without much idea of what I was doing with my life. But after a couple of different sort of stumbles in different directions, I ended up in the police academy when I was 19. What made you think policing was for you? I've thought about this, I've even written about it, but ultimately I think that's going to be lost to history, that, that idea. I mean, I'm sure I saw... I always wanted to be a detective, that was the thing. I didn't join for any other reason, so it wasn't like I went in there and thought, hmm, what might end up doing. I knew right from the get-go what I wanted to be in that environment, so I'm sure some of the TV detectives of the 70s and 80s would have been some I was going to ask, influence. who was your crime-fighting hero in the childhood that led you in that direction? might be interesting that some of those heroes are probably now quite odious to think about. <laughs> Infamous rather than famous. Well, you know, some of those shows are pretty pretty right-wing in the way they yeah. depict stuff. But The Professionals is the one that I remember the most. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's a UK Never. thing. It's about a thing called CI5, which is like a version of MI5 in Britain. Did they investigate aliens or...? No, it was all, it was all very much like high-level, you know corruption and stuff going on in the yeah. upper levels of British society wow, okay. life and that, but, you know, it had a very, you know, everyone was shooting everyone, that sort of thing, all this kind of stuff that never happens in the... It in, never happens in real in life. In Britain, I'm sure there were some US ones. 
like Starsky and Hutch was one I watched as a kid, which probably you know I got pretty excited about. And there was a show, Australian show called Homicide, even earlier. Yeah. Which you know probably in the back of my mind, something like that would have been just like yeah, you know, maybe it would be to investigate those kinds of offences. So you know there was there was no clear design, but somewhere in the back of my head, that's what I wanted to do. So 19-year-old Dean goes off to the police academy in Queensland in the 90s, did you say? 86. 86. Just at the end of the Joe era. Yeah, 86 is a really interesting time to mm. be in policing in Queensland. Was it what you expected? I would say to that that I had no expectation. I had no forebears. I didn't know anyone in the police. The best I had was a guy I played soccer with at the time who joined the academy a few months before me, so we talked a bit, but... Other than that, I was like really an outsider to the whole sphere. But when people ask, you know, Fitzgerald Inquiry was called two, three months after I started out on the street and people always ask about that that connection and and, and really it comes down to just being so young and so focused on doing the job and doing it properly and you just probably were as unaware of what was going on as the rest of the public in a lot of ways or maybe even more so. Yeah. So, you know, I might have seen a few bits and pieces and put a few things together in my head later on, but generally you just all you were focusing on was all this new stuff because I guess the thing when you, when you join the police is that there's just so much new stuff hitting you. Yeah. But the police academy was my first experience of actually sitting down and going, I need to really study hard to get through this process, so that's probably where I first actually paid attention in that class. Were you not a nerd in school? I wasn't a nerd, I don't think. I was more interested in sport and, and that sort of thing. I, I always liked reading, but for whatever reasons, I just didn't fit into the the environment. My, uh, probably a lot of city of development. I just wasn't mentally ready, as I think a lot of people are at yeah. that age. I think a lot of people are expected to come out of school and know what they want and, and to, you know, to understand what they want to do at university, all that sort of stuff. And I it's think a ridiculous requirement. You really need that development time to, to work that out, so... So, Young Dean finishes at the police academy. What happens next? I did the sort of 12 months of just routine policing, beat stuff around the city. I stayed in Brisbane. Yeah, seeing off, obviously, a lot of stuff that a 20-year-old, you know, was pretty either amazing or confronting. But, yeah, I pretty much did that for a year and then just went straight into plain clothes and just went straight down that line of becoming a detective. There was no ifs, buts or maybes. I just did it and I was a detective by the time I was 24. Is that common for the time? Because it seems no. remarkably quick now. No, I don't think you could do it now. And back then it was fairly uncommon. Yeah. So, so what was special about you? Again, I think I just had this drive to do that and I had this disinterest in doing all the other stuff. <laughs> so a lot of other people would love running around giving people tickets and... Yeah. You know, arresting people for urinating in the street and all this other sort of stuff. God. And for me, it was just like, get me out of here. I just want to start investigating crime, I suppose. So, how was the detectives training? Limited back then. You just had one six week period at the police academy, which I distinctly recall not enjoying. In fact, to the extent that I made a decision I was never going to do any more training ever again <laughs> in the police, and I actually didn't. I never did another training course of that nature again, which is probably one reason why I left in the end. But yeah, yeah, it was mostly just working with people, some good, some probably not so good, some with tainted histories coming out of that period. 
in Queensland, but I think you can learn from anybody in life, no matter what they're, you know, you can learn good things and bad things and what to do and what not to do. So you just stumble through it and away you go. How did your career as a detective progress? So for some reason I was keen on joining the fraud squad and I just can't quite remember what, why that would have been other than perhaps I sort of always had this attraction towards stuff that other people sort of didn't want to do, sort of the dirty work so to speak, so the fraud squad was somewhere most people would name for, so I went there for three years, enjoyed it at the time even though looking back I can't understand why I would have enjoyed that kind of thing, but anyway I think it was a pretty good learning ground, then I did drug squad for six months, utterly despised it, probably might have been sort of the start of my understanding a bit more about the political sort of aspects of policing and justice and understanding how crazy some of the things we do and some of the laws we create are in that sort of regard. So hightailed out out of there pretty fast to probably what I at that stage really wanted to do which was join the child abuse unit. So, What was interesting about the child abuse unit for you? Again I think it was a an area that a lot of people didn't want to be in. It wasn't considered to be a real detective if you worked in that space, particularly back in that time. I think it had more of a sort of a famine than mm-hmm. feel to it, which for me was great. I never was one of the boys in the police. I always preferred hanging around working with women, actually, for whatever reason, non-men. So, yeah, so I worked there for six or seven months. That was in 1993. Went to the Criminal Justice Commission at the time, the CCC now, on a promotion. Did five years there, not particularly enjoyable sort of stuff, but that's when I got my first degree. And um, as soon as I could, I moved back into the what was then called Child and Sexual Assault Unit and then spent seven years there pretty much till I left. Seven years is a big innings. Mm. What was your first degree? It was actually social science with criminology and psychology and all okay. those sorts of things yeah. and I pretty much hated it. Did you? What did you hate about it? Well, I did it because that was the done thing getting into the 90s that police officers got a degree to progress, which was yeah. something that wasn't really around. In the, you know, even when I joined, I always say when I was first joined in the 80s, there was one particular detective in Brisbane who everyone referred to him as the guy with a degree. He was so <laughs> rare. He just had an undergraduate degree. It was like, oh, wow, he's got a degree. It was <laughs> yeah. unbelievable. So it was a pretty new thing at that stage, and I guess, yeah, I, I, I couldn't go back and tell you what my definite motivations were. I could only tell you that some of the stuff I enjoyed most in the first degree was like electives, like history and stuff like that. Yeah. So yeah, I, I weirdly did that without any idea that this might sort of yeah. somehow fold into my future sort of pathway. Um, so the seven years returning to child abuse and sexual assault, what was that like? Complex. I, th- I feel like I felt I was where I wanted to be. I was doing what I was ended up being pretty good at. Enjoyed the people I worked with. Enjoyed helping people. Stuff that was, you know, going on was sort of water off the duck's back in a way in terms of, you know, having to see the you know, obviously uglier side of humanity pretty much. Yeah. On a day to day basis. And I eventually sort of just probably a little bit by accident sort of specialised in abuse of trauma in infants, particularly head trauma. Yeah, wow. I was involved in a lot of those sorts of cases, you know, got used to going to all the post-mortems and doing all the medical stuff. Yeah, when you're in there, it's, you're just doing it. At that stage, the longer you were there, and the better you became at it, 
probably the more they wanted you to be there, even though there was also a rule that you weren't supposed to be there for for too long. Three years was the rule, but it was really flexible and 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 you know probably abused by people in power a lot in those days to keep someone where they had them, where they were actually getting good work out of them without any kind of interest in the psychological impacts on somebody. Did you feel like there were psychological impacts? I probably only knew about them when I left or was about to leave or was forced to get out of there because it actually hit me in a way all at once that I can't do this anymore. So, but yeah, while I was in there it was... I mean, what happened was after three years when it might have been time to leave, not that I th- know that I would have left, my partner died of cancer, so it was like, I clearly remember the boss saying to me at that stage, you know, what do you want to do? And I just said, listen, just can you not move me at the moment? I just want to, you know, obviously what you're looking for at that point in your life is some kind of routine and not, not any more sort of challenges on top of you, what you've already got or something like that. So that's probably part of the reason why I involved, I just stayed there and then I stayed there and I got into the training section a little bit so I did a few different things but ultimately it's probably just happenstance that I ended up being there for seven years. A lot of people, most people wouldn't have stayed there that long. I don't regret it but it was, yeah, it has psychological impacts that did I wasn't aware of at the time. Did you notice psychological impacts in your colleagues while you were there? I know there were a few but yeah this is the late 90s early 2000s so we're still in a period of really it's like you know keep it to yourself and yeah. you know, be a, say be a man because there are a lot of ma- people weren't males there but that kind of attitude of you know you've just got to do your job and just hold it in tough it out sort of yeah. thing, which, which is inevitable you've got to do that to a certain extent but I spoke to a police psych- psychologist after just after I left and that was the first time I'd ever spoken to anyone in that whole period about anything do you think it was just the culture that stopped you recognising that this was having an impact on you? I, I wouldn't like to say that because it makes it like, seem like it's a bit all negative, whereas I was actually enjoying what I was doing. I was getting up for work each day actually wanting to be at work, which has always been my goal in life. I feel like I've been in that position a lot of times, and when I haven't been in that position, I've realised how awful it is to get up in the morning going, oh, shit, I've got to go to this place again. I can't stand it, and that's really not a good place to be in so yeah. I was enjoying what I was doing and I don't know, maybe the psychological stuff collateral damage that has to happen in those spaces otherwise who does the job who does the job I mean and this is it if you yeah I mean I always say to students you you will experience vicarious trauma the question is how much yeah, and how you deal with it rather than like you can't confront the worst of humanity is which is what we do in justice yeah. and not be impacted so what led up to you leaving Ultimately, to cut it short, I got to the end of the degree I was doing just as I got into child abuse and I think that the, the, the real upshot of it was that they had a, I was doing my degree at UNE in Armadale, so the upshot of it was, was that the student union back in the days when they had a student union had an essay competition and I wrote an essay for the competition because it was a sort of blank space between when I was like about seven or eight when I was writing like little novels in notebooks and like you could probably see that there was something in me that was interested in writing and then that, that just flew off. Yeah. Like 20 years, wherever the hell it went, it just disappeared and I did other things and didn't really think about it. But once I started doing that first degree, even though I wasn't enjoying myself, there were a couple of 
times where I got reasonable marks, I didn't really get great marks at all in that first degree. Yeah, me either. Um, actually, one of the subjects, weirdly, which I'm doing here now, of course, was deviance. It's one of the ones where, the, where I got a reasonably good mark and got some, you know, just that little bit of, of like a little comment in the reply from the teacher was just enough to make you feel as though you might be okay. So that's why I feel when I'm marking and that I really want to make sure, even for students who might not be going so well, you give them some kind of encouragement because there's so many people who are at that level at one stage who before you know it are going to be at another level. So yeah. I really don't believe in, in compartmentalising people too easily in that in that context because I remember how much that impacted me just to have that little bit of sort Encouragement. Yeah, that, encouragement. That, it's that little bit of... I mean, I was exactly the same. It was one assessment where one academic oh. said, hey, you're actually really good at this. Great. That changed... That, that's the reason I'm sitting here yeah. today, it's which is... one person can really... Yeah, which is incredible. Yeah. So that made you think I might be good at this essay competition or that just made you think I want to pursue this differently? I, I entered it, I won it, and it was like started doing, like I was really into music at the time and I wrote this thing about music and I started doing little music reviews on, and that at home and um, before I know it, I can't remember exactly why I decided, but I decided to just go straight in and do an English literature slash sort of communications. Yeah, wow. Second degree, which I did. I suddenly started getting HDs, which is just... Yeah, you did. Immediately tells me and what I always say to people is if you're not enjoying what you're doing, you're not going to do well, just don't bother, just do something that you actually want to do and you'll, you'll probably end up achieving something or just feeling like you need to be there. So I got an English degree, this all fed into the period where I sort of started thinking do I actually want to be in the police anymore. A lot of that was to do with I just didn't have any managerial um, aspirations, so once, you know, I had to do management courses to even get to the next level, the sergeant level, and it was like... Honestly, I don't, I don't want to do this. I can't, cannot bear it. I hate management at any sort of, you know, the idea of studying management to me is, is something that would just make me run screaming from the room. So, I don't know, these things all fit into each other. The, the having to leave the sexual assault, child abuse and sexual assault unit, or deciding I had to leave sort of fed into me just finishing my honours in literature. It fed into one of my... Um, Teachers who end up being my PhD, one of my PhD supervisors asked me if I wanted to do some marking. She obviously thought I had some weird acumen in that area. And I've got to say, you do. Well, like you are very good at that. It's just accidental, really, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. If, if it's true, but the bottom line is that all fell into place in that one year where it was just like they actually moved me back to the fraud squad. I wanted to go to the homicide squad. I thought I was capable of doing that kind of thing, but no, they decided to move me back to the fraud squad. I utterly despised it because A, I was just completely over that kind of thing, I had no interest in it and B, you don't want to go back somewhere where you already feel like you've sort of achieved, yeah. done what you needed to do, it's just like crazy so all unpleasant at the time but in the end as, as often happens you look back and go well, I'm glad that all happened because I made that decision to get my ass out of the police yeah. which I may not have made, I'm not the kind of person who breaks routine that easily so all those negatives, as far as I'm concerned, sort of fed into a positive where I just quit, got in a car, parked, piled all my crap into my car and drove to Armadale the next start of the next semester. Yeah, wow. PhD, not really knowing what was going to happen. Tell me about your PhD. Was it in English? Music. Lit music. Music criticism. Hmm. 
You are such an interesting human, Dean. Oh, I don't know. I think I'm just very short attention span and I just can't sort of stick to one thing for too long. So. Tell me about music criticism. I know nothing. I think what it was that I'd read a lot of that stuff and I'd done sort of a lot of the cultural studies stuff in, in that second degree and in a very similar way to the way I feel about criminology. I disagreed with all of the different theories, or at least I disagreed yeah. with like there was one group on one side and one on the other, and I said, this is crap. There's a middle ground here that's, that's being avoided by people putting themselves into these boxes. In music, that's sort of generally on one side. It's like the people who actually can you know, write music and read music and call music theorists or musicologists who are generally more interested in classical music or anything that's got a really complex sort of nature to it. And then you've got popular music studies on the other side, which is far more like sociology slash cultural studies. So those were the two that I could see sort of warring amongst each other. And I just decided to go straight down the middle and sort of criticise them all and, and talk more about what people actually do when they listen to music or what you know, people can do rather than putting them into strict categories. I was particularly uncomfortable with audience members in, in music, as I would be in any situation, being sort of categorised on the basis of what theorists sort of think about the actual content. Anyway, that's what I wrote it about. I, I always find it interesting when I hear people say, oh, PhD is such hell, and you know, it was so hard. I just thought it was the best three years of my life. I really enjoyed what I was doing. I ripped through it, yeah. and. The interesting part was getting to the end of it and going, right, well, now I actually probably need to get a job. Yeah, what, and, do you, um, what do you do? How on earth? What do you do in that area if you're not really interested in, like, AFCs or finding an uh, academic job in some obscure place? But really, what the reason I did it was because I wanted to write inverted commas, and that was something I knew I could write about, and some idea in my head that if I did a PhD, I'd somehow become a writer, which was all bullshit, but anyway, it was a driving force, so that was really why I did it. But, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. It was sort of a, a, and I've gone on and kept, I keep writing, I write music, stuff about music all the time, reviews and stuff in journals and, and stuff, but it's almost like a hobby-ish sort of thing, I yeah. suppose, in a way. So how does the guy who discovers that he loves literature and writing and then music end up back in criminology? Simple answer is my partner at the time was pregnant when I finished my PhD and she also got put off from a job at UNE so someone needed to earn some money and <laughs> it was pretty so that and just I suppose the general background um, that's probably around the time I met our head of school John Scott around 2009 because I went to him asking so I met him socially a couple of times around the place in Armadale and I just asked him whether you know, there was any work in criminology, marking or whatever, ended up helping him write a paper, do like helping with the research and writing a paper on Wolf Creek, the film, partially on Wolf Creek. So yeah, I yeah, so we came back to Brisbane, my partner was pregnant, he lost the baby, the baby was still born, and I got a job just at that time in the children's commission. So okay. the background in child abuse ended up probably being what got me this job in the what's called child death review team in the Children's Commission in 2000, end of 2009, yeah. They do some really difficult work in the child death review teams. Yeah, I've still got a friend who's in that area, but um, I'm a bit, bit away from it now, but um, yeah, I was there for three years nearly. Again, I'm not, not sure I felt that was, that was where I needed to be or should be, but it, 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 I quite enjoyed it. What was your role? 
just like a research officer. I went there originally because they were doing a some kind of project on abuse of deaths in young people, so I sort of took that over and ended up just doing the more general stuff, you know, yeah. preparing the annual reports and child deaths and all that sort of thing. But, um, and then our good friend Campbell Newman came along and gutted the public service. Campbell. And, and that was all over. That man has a lot to answer for. Let's not even think about it. Let's <laughs> move right along from Campbell Newman. But again, that was a bad, or sensibly bad thing that turned out good, as far as I'm saying, because it forced me out to go, what am I going to do now? And pretty much the only option seemed to be to try and get sessional academic work, which I did at Griffith, and then eventually here. That leads me to sitting here. That's amazing. Today. What's it like being a sessional academic? Hmm, another interesting one. It could take hours. I think that the important thing, if I'm going to say something about that, is to put myself in a position where I'm actually, by choice, a sessional academic. So there were a couple of years there where I had some idea that I would go for a job if it came up or whatever, but ultimately I've come to realise I'm also too old to think about it. I'm almost at you know, super sort of gathering age, so no. that's part of it as well. I've got to do the math, so I joined the police in the mid-80s. I'm a qualitative researcher. You can't get away from it. So um, it's taken a while to feel comfortable and to feel like I can teach. I've spent a long period of time not being that comfortable, sort of doing it without really feeling like I belong in this space. Maybe I still don't feel like I particularly belong in this space, but the real upshot of it was for me, or is for me, is that you start teaching what you've designed yourself. I, I really think that's an important thing. I, I suspect for most academics that's what happens for them, like tenured people, that they end up teaching the stuff they've designed themselves. So I've been really lucky at QUT that I've been able to do that a fair bit now, and that's pretty much what I'm doing. And I've come to realise that as long as I can survive financially, which you know, can be a bit of a struggle in that context, but you know, I'm obviously luckier than most. You know, I've, I've found my niche where I'm doing this stuff as a job and enjoying doing it, enjoying the teaching, and then the, whatever research I might help people with if that happens. But at the same time, I go away on the weekend and I write stuff about music and all that sort of other stuff, and that's what I want to do. And you know, I couldn't see myself now doing research in areas that I just don't really have a drive to do, so it's sort of, in the end, worked out. Yeah. To a position where I'm comfortable, I, I can see, and obviously there are huge downsides to, for sessionals, as there is exploitation, a lot of it happens, you know, from people who are actually wanting to do the right thing, I think, but it just happens because of the way universities operate in the 21st century, I suspect. So it's different for different people. You'd be different for different people at different ages. People who just come out of their PhD who are 28 or whatever aren't going to be in this position that I am, which is quite a lucky one to be able to make that sort of decision to, to be happy to work that way. So for me, it works really well, and I'm glad I never got a job. All those people who never picked me for those jobs I went for, thank you. It worked <laughs> out perfectly. But, um, yeah. That, that's just me and I think for a lot of other people it's a lot more, it's a lot more difficult. Do you think that it, there isn't something inherently problematic with the casualisation of university workforces? Absolutely there is. But again, it's sort of for me, it's, you know, I don't feel like I need someone to come up to me and say, well, you've been here for eight years, you deserve to have a full-time job, I'm probably happy. That doesn't happen, but that doesn't mean it's right that it, that it doesn't happen. I just feel like 
how's that genie ever going to go back into the bottle? It's just you, you, you bring in the whole, you know, the whole argument around the illusion and, and what's going on just generally in, in society, and and in a way that all feeds back into the idea of justice to me. Like, yeah. And and there's one reason why I'm glad I'm working in. in Justice. I can see from where I sit that all this stuff I've done in relation to music and the time in the police and the time I've worked in other places and stuff I've done around film and literature, they all, for me, all feed into the idea of justice, that nothing that I've done doesn't inform my teaching and my thinking when I'm here, so there's, there's no sort of separation. Whereas yeah. the idea of criminology, particularly for me, I find unpleasantly somehow separates people off and which is why in terms of I think I said to you before we did this podcast if you asked me about my favourite theorist or whatever you, you're going to have problems because I've always been this sort of down the middle don't join a club sort of person maybe down the middle is not right maybe it's outside somewhere <laughs> down the middle but yeah so yeah just the idea of criminal justice I, I've come to abhor I don't think there's any justice without ju- justice is just justice as soon as you compartmentalise criminal justice, you're allowing in all these sorts of unpleasantries that, that end up missing the, the point, if that makes sense. Tell me more about that, though. Like, what <coughs> is, is criminal justice not necessary? I won't say it's not necessary, but I still feel as though justice should be just justice. What does that mean? I think it means that, well... There's so much going on that should be criminal if, if you're going to call, you know, having a bag of marijuana in your pocket a criminal or whatever. There's so much going on in society that is criminal that, that isn't defined that way that I really start to find the idea of criminal justice as, as so compromised as to be extremely problematic. And, and I know, you know, there's people all doing great work in that area here particularly in things like queer criminology and feminist criminology, all those sorts of things. Everyone's doing great work, but I, I just question whether they're really doing criminology or if they are, whether there's not something sort of dubious about it being criminology. I, I just feel as though justice is a more important concept to wrap oneself around in this sphere than Criminology, maybe it's got something to do with what I've seen in the police and some of the cultural aspects of it. And, and if you say justice is justice, what does justice mean to you? Oh, it's, it's complicated and it's difficult to put your finger on. It's something you've got to keep sort of fighting for without ever really being sure. I mean, that feeds in, you, you question, your question was about, let me quickly read it, about the uh, professional challenge you've had and, and probably for me it's it's been to keep focusing on the idea of justice but knowing that it's really ephemeral and hard to ever really grab. I mean if you spend seven years investigating child abuse and sexual assault complaints, dealing with those sorts of victims, maybe you inevitably come out of it with a very contradictory idea of justice, like constantly wanting it but also at the same time constantly knowing that it's really evasive and a lot of people it's never going to really come no matter how hard you fight for it but you still have to fight for it I mean there is like I struggle with the notion of justice insofar as 
particularly around the child abuse space, because I think you can never, like, the repair of that harm is such a challenge and so problematic. I don't know what the just response is in terms of child abuse because you can't put back what was taken away. It's almost like you have to create something, a different world for an individual that experiences that harm so young. And what then do you do with a perpetrator in relation to that who is often a family member or someone who's cared about? And that notion of there not being an absolute form of justice and maybe maybe justice is not inherently equitable? Oh, it's probably not equitable. I think you're right. Now that, now that you say that, that's smart. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. But um, can, we, can we just say that we're constantly sort of aiming, you know, if we can't fix this, you know, this person's wrecked life, it can give us some insight into how we stop more people's lives being turned that way in the future, maybe. Yeah, this is this is one of the biggest struggles, I think, that we have because systems are set up for solutions, right? Systems are set up to fix problems and sometimes they do that really poorly, but in order to fix the problem, there is this notion that you need something that's incredibly clearly defined and I just don't think that's realistic in the spaces that we work in. And there is no yeah. golden solution, no magic pill that will fix the complexities of problems that we deal with. I'll be very willing to admit that I talk a better talk than I walk. <laughs> I walk in that regard, I think. But in this context, I, I find students give me a lot of hope in that regard. Ooh, tell me about that. Well, I was thinking about the example before we did this of, of some edit I'm running next summer, environmental, I hope I am, <laughs> should be. Totally you'll be running it. Environmental justice and climate change, because the first time I ran it last summer, um, what really I came away from, and I'd probably do that with most of the stuff I work on here actually, was just this idea that, um, I don't want to cut out this expletive, but we don't cut out the expletive. world is fucked in terms of what we're doing about the environment, it's very hard to see what, how that's going to be fixed, certainly in terms of how my generation have dealt with it and are, are continuing to deal with it slash balls it up. But to come away from running a unit like that or being involved with students in a, in a unit like that and, and finding that almost all of them have these fantastic ideas and these really great beliefs about what has to be done in the future, that to me is the is the escape route sort of for, for you know not being just overwhelmed by, by the negativity of it and, and also just for that unit as an example you know the, the stuff that goes on around environmental abuse damage inadequate responses strongly informs my belief that criminal justice is problematic because so many things that are criminal don't seem to me to be as damaging or as you know globally impact, impactful as stuff that we're doing with the climate, that sort of thing. So maybe that comes back to that idea where I just don't feel comfortable with, with the definition of crime generally and the idea of criminal justice. Have you got thoughts on a better way of achieving justice? Probably not in, in as much as pretty much what we just discussed, that you've got to keep sort of fighting for it until 
well, not until you just got to keep somehow feeling like you're fighting for it without any idea that it's going to be achieved. I mean, why bother? Before, well, I think is it still a future sort of thing? Do you think? I mean, you can do something for someone who's been horrendously yeah. used by somebody for years, for example, but you can't turn back that happening. But you can fight for their justice in some way and then maybe make their life better. And you know, Even though you know that when you walk out of that courtroom and the perpetrator goes off for 10 years in jail, that that's not really, you know, it's not turning the clock back and, and you know, making what happened go away. And yeah, I admit it's, it's complicated. Oh, look, and I mean, I think this is... I mean, this is one of the things that I don't think we talk about enough in the kind of justice space is that it... Like, they're wicked problems. Like, they're just wicked problems that will continually be messy. And we... Like, I, I agree with you. I don't think in my lifetime we will have these solutions, but we will have some solutions... And maybe that's the point. But I know that a lot of justice professionals kind of get in that space of you don't always have a lot of wins. In fact, you probably have fewer wins than you have losses in terms of unsatisfactory outcomes because maybe there's not really satisfactory outcomes out there. But how do we as professionals keep going in that space? When I was in the police, it's funny you mentioned that because there was a period of quite a might have been six or seven cases of whatever criminality, child abuse, sexual abuse that, that myself and a particular partner I worked with for a year or so had and they all either died before they got to court or, or the person was found not guilty but at that time I felt as though that was the you know getting them into court and having them found guilty was the answer. That's just what you're focused on and, you know, particularly when you're, you're young and stupid like I was and, you know, it's only later on that you realise that, well, what if those people had all been found guilty? Would that really have changed much? You know, it was more maybe for my benefit in a way, you know, that I'd investigated these cases and wanted them to be found guilty when in reality it's so much more complex than that. There's a woman called Erickson, Patricia Erickson, who wrote a paper. She talks about this thing called a social justice consciousness, and I quite like what she says. She more focuses on the idea of having this consciousness rather than necessarily actually, you know, results in anything concrete. Like sometimes it will, but oftentimes obviously it won't. But if people have that sort of from the start, I feel as though it's somehow, somehow it, it's it's a win. Is that who you're going with for your favourite theorist theory body of work? <laughs> I don't know enough about it. I do like that idea, but um, I've read a bit of Cohen lately, a bit more of Cohen, and, and his sort of ideas of anti-criminology are quite attractive to me, but again, I'm not a joiner, so I generally... I, I, I find it strange when people attach themselves to a theorist or even maybe a body of theory. I'm generally just too contradictory or maybe just too untrusting to, to really feel like I ever want to be attached to something. Like maybe I'm a Marxist in, in a lot of ways, but you know, and I think Marx is important and really great to read and it's bad that people have sort of positioned his stuff as some kind of, you know, 
it's almost like a, 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 a devil sort of yeah. folk devil or something for a lot of society but um, yeah I, I would never extend that to the point where I'd want anyone to call me a Marxist or something I don't know quite understand why anyone wants to be named after someone else I'm, I'm, I'm not sure maybe I'm not, it's just me I mean it kind of goes back to that question that we've been circling around of how do you survive in systems that are inherently unsatisfactory but serve something of a purpose that is meaningful and worthwhile and it feels to me as if you survive by being part of and not part of systems. Yeah, well I think there's a lot of stuff I've read recently around criminology again which sort of does that in a way like there's a lot of people who are really critical of criminology but they're still within criminology and questioning how how you get out of it and sort of talking about how you know particularly um, say feminist or female input into this field is important but it's still within a really male dominated and a history of criminology that's all white men Mm. So why it would be better outside? So that sort of inside-outside stuff is probably going on at every level, maybe that we're in. Yeah. I think I'm more inclined to think that it's just an on constant battle rather than any kind of where we're going to end up. Yeah. Sort of thing. I think that maybe that's the way to look at it. I mean, the bottom line reality is that society actually functions on dysfunction. And if you took dysfunction out of the system, all you would have then is some kind of monolith of an idea of how the world should run, and that is going to exclude people. We've done that in colonial histories, where we've come in and said, this is how it should be, and we've excluded people with the objective of creating one thing. Very true. And I think that (coughs) points to the kind of ongoing, problematic, wicked nature of what we do in criminology that we should not ignore. Yeah. I guess, like, I want to ask then, for all of those students going into policing careers, recognising that the system is difficult and complex and isn't going to provide the solutions that they maybe hope that it will provide, what would your advice to them be? I think I'd, I'd, I'd still limit it to do what you enjoy, do what you want to do. If, if you're there doing something because you want to be there, you're probably going to make some kind of a difference. Whereas if you're there just because you happen to be there or you're there under sufferance or whatever, it's probably not going to work out so well. I mean, knowing that a lot of our students will end up as police, for example, is always heartening to me. Like, I'll see stuff go on in the news or I'll see stuff on Facebook from people that I might have used to work with in the police saying really outlandish, outrageous sort of stuff. and feel really uncomfortable about that whole police culture and that whole, you know, what's going on there. But then I'll you know, talk to students and, and the vast majority of the time I'll be quite, you know, I'll, be, I'll be the other way, I'll be quite hopeful about the future in that space. And, and I mean, there's just so many complexities and, and part of it for me was sort of almost running from it when I left. Like, things were getting more complex and it was harder to just make decisions on the spot and there were more laws and more more stuff coming in around use of force and, and for me it was just I didn't want to be there. I felt like in the period that I was doing that sort of stuff, you know, the late 80s, 90s in particular, it was 
it was more survivable. Yeah. You think on your feet in situations. I suspect it's probably a lot harder to do that now, just because the. I mean, surveillance is the first thing that comes to my mind. You can not do much as a police officer or anybody these days without having a camera potentially on you. And, and it's interesting to see a lot of the stuff that goes on, like not only in America but even here, like assaults in watch houses and you know, terrible things that happen on the streets in America, the George Floyd thing obviously being an obvious example and I'm just looking at them and I just think you see police that are so indoctrinated into a certain way of acting that all this change has happened and it's gone from being you know you can do sort of stuff and no one's going to know about it to everyone's looking at you, people are pointing cameras at you but they're still acting in ways that sort of fit the old culture or something Yeah, they don't seem capable of responding to this and, and you think yourself, are that, that just stupid or is it actually just so ingrained in them that this is the way we act in this culture that they just do it? And or do they get away with it enough that the time that it, it is exposed is just not consequential? Maybe, maybe, but I also think there's something in the back of some of their heads that's just like they don't actually think they're doing something. Yeah. Well, that's, that's maybe the thing, so... What are your top tips for students surviving at university? Absolutely, again, do something you actually enjoy doing. Don't do it because you just have to be there or you find some niche or some, you know, something that you actually really want to do. And if you're actually enjoying writing that essay rather than just thinking, oh, I've got to write this essay before Friday and I can't bear it, then I'm not, my experience is you're not actually going to get anything out of that. Do we not all in life, though, have to do things that we don't want to do? Well, that's a good point, yeah. Yeah, there's, a, there's an interesting line there between don't want to do and, you know, like, enjoy doing, because, you, you know, you know this is good for me, even though I, I, I'm not particularly interested or something, maybe. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I'm with you. I'm a... Do what you're passionate about in life, rather than what you think will... I think rather than what you think will get you the job, do what you think, do your, do what you're passionate about and make it work. But I also think in order to do what you're passionate about, sometimes you just have to do the hard slog of the things that just are not really exciting. But I also think that you've found a balance in life where you have a beautiful mixture of kind of areas of your life of things that you really enjoy and that are really rewarding to you and that's a difficult balance to strike. I'm glad you said that because that then takes me in, in a little bit back to your previous question because a lot of that now I'm probably looking at in hindsight so there probably were occasions where I did stuff that I wasn't actually enjoying as much as I think I was now but you know it comes to a good purpose in the end so yeah I think you, you made a good point there that maybe enjoyment's too simplistic a way to, to put it maybe it's just that you've got to want to do it. Yeah. You know, you've, got to, you've got to understand that, uh, as you say, some stuff you'll really enjoy and other stuff might be hard, but if you've got a, a goal for it or you, or, you, or you at least understand that this is going to be good for me in the future, maybe in ways that I don't quite understand yet, then it's worth doing. Because yeah. it's definitely the case that at the time you, you, you may not see what's, what's good about something as, as clearly as you do, as you do later. I mean, overall, I love my job, but there's some parts of it that I just can't stand. Oh, yeah. Like, I just, just, I just tedious and blur. But overall, still passionate and enthusiastic about what I 
do and maybe that's the point that's the balance yeah I think that's a good point to get to yeah Dean you were saying I'm just going to say in, in just if policing's the example then then that's a little bit harder because you obviously absolutely have to do stuff there that you would run a million miles from if you could so yeah I, I'm, I'm conscious of wanting to say something that is actually useful advice for students so, so maybe that's a good way to end it that you know some of that stuff is actually really important if you, if you can understand that you're doing something that's really important then it, maybe that gets you over that hurdle of but being particularly ugly because you know and it's not just the police you're going to see ugly stuff pretty much anywhere you're working in. so it's about maybe then and it's okay to have rambling discussions about this Dear listener, I want you to know that we don't have all the answers. That's very good. <laughs> like, there's no magic pills here, uh, but maybe it's about the... Overall, you need to be finding value in in what you're doing. And even if it's... We have this notion that it needs to be absolute value and absolutely everything. And I just... I don't think that's realistic for any of the justice fears that we work in, but if you can maintain the sense of overall value of what you're doing, then I think that's what sustains careers more than anything. So the example I often give to students, and again, I'm going back to police, because that's my experience, I suppose. It may work differently in other areas, but we always worked with the ideas of the more people you arrested, the better it was. You know, you had to find evidence. You had to show evidence that you were working, and the evidence of that was, best evidence of that was to put someone before the courts and arrest them. And only in hindsight can I see how an utterly simplistic and, and inappropriate sort of way that is to act. But that was the entire system. So you talked before about systems and how they impact us. And I, I suspect to some extent that may still impact people in that, in that sphere. So, yeah, there's problems you've got to work around yourself somehow with, with the system you're within, I guess. It's interesting because if you go back to the Peelian principles of policing, Robert Peel, who set up our modern police services one of his principles is very clearly that the best evidence that the police are doing their job is not in just arresting as many people that you can but in actually being able to diminish crime and that doesn't always mean arresting as many people as you can Dean, it's been absolutely delightful getting to know you better and uh, we love having you around in the School of Justice. That's nice. And I uh, only ever hear really beautiful things about you, so congratulations on building an excellent career. Is there anything else that you desperately want to tell us on How To Academia? No, I appreciate very much getting the chance to talk to you. I appreciate you referring to my career, even though I'm still struggling to work out if it is a career or if it's just a pile of happenstance. But um, Totally here, a career. Here we sit, so... <laughs> I mean, a pile of happenstance could be a career. Yeah. All in all, thank you. Thank you very much. This podcast was hosted and produced by the excellent Associate Professor Jodie Deeth. Editing by Kelsey Adams, that's me. Music by Poddington Bear. And this podcast was developed with support from the Queensland University of Technology. Thank you for listening. <laughs>